Before we get to this episode, just to say thanks to everyone who's bought my new book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself. Published by Bloomsbury, the response has been terrific. It's an Amazon bestseller. It's been top 20 in the airport charts consistently, and the reviews have been terrific right across the board. And if you like this episode that you're about to hear on Flow, you'll be sure to enjoy Champion Thinking. Head to my website, simonmundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to Don't Tell Me The Score, the podcast that uses sport to explore life's bigger questions. My name is Simon Mundy and this week I'm joined by the former England rugby captain turned intrepid adventurer and charity fundraiser extraordinaire, Lewis Moody. Now Lewis won 71 England caps during an illustrious career, playing a key role in the 2003 final as England won the World Cup as well as four years later as England got within a whisker of retaining the title against all the odds. Now, Lewis was hugely popular with his fellow players and the fans, and his nickname was Mad Dog on account of his apparent disregard for his own personal safety on the pitch. However, as he explains, he was well aware of his personal safety. He was just willing to put his body on the line for his teammates. Now, that selflessness is a thread that runs through Lewis's life, through to the work he's been doing through his foundation, set up to support people affected by brain tumours as well as their families. And the story of how his foundation came into being is a moving one. So clearly the theme is selflessness, but we also talk about leadership, authenticity, personal responsibility, trusting your intuition, bravery, honesty, pressure, and the downside of achieving your loftiest goals. This episode really is full of lessons. I love chatting to Lewis. He's one of sport's great guys, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Lewis Moody, how are you? Hi, mate. I'm really good, thanks. I'm really good, Tom. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on Don't Tell Me The Score. You are a fascinating character. You're a very likeable chap. We've spoken a few times before. You've even listened to one of my back catalogue and said that you enjoyed it. So uh, I'm thrilled to have you on, I must say. 
Oh mate, well, I just I just said that to make you feel comfortable. Obviously, it was uh, <laughs> it was rubbish. <laughs> no, I did enjoy it, mate. And I, do you know what? I've got into I've got into listening to podcasts. Um, I've got like a bit of a I'm a bit of a history buffer at heart. Not not that that's uh, relevant for your podcast, but so I've got into podcasts through history and World War One and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Um, really there's a reason for that, right? Because <clears throat> you're you're named after your great grandfather who was called Lewis, who fought in World War One, right? Yes. Yeah. You were going to give my middle name ago then weren't you you, were gonna, and you, you didn't lewis walton moody exactly That's it. Uh, yeah. i didn't want to embarrass you lewis you know? oh, mate. Well, i got enough i got enough stick at school for that with john boy and mary lou with the waltons and all that but <laughs> yeah mate so it was uh absolutely yeah you know, i wanted to know more about that as a as a kid and understand you know why i'd been named after my great granddad so um and lewis became a name my dad was also lewis um yeah so it was a fascination for me and uh, and wanting to to understand more and you know from also a point of view of um how people could put themselves through that uh, you know on a daily basis like that type of adversity i just couldn't get my head around and that my family had been through it yeah um, i then ended up fulfilling a role with the rfu around the centenary of the first world war and um and the commemorating the yeah the the 27 individuals that the england internationals that died but um yeah so the family the family history in the in the wars has always has always been a an interesting part of my life and understanding um, and reading into world war one and all the different stories the battlefield trips that we've been on now but anyway we diverse because i was talking divulge i was talking about your your podcast on clive and that was that was what got me that was what got me into it <laughs> yeah i've got into tons of other podcasts on history which i won't bore you with now actually you mentioned the history and you know the england players who died and you know you're very popular with the fans for a number of reasons, but one of which is I think your love of or respect for the armed services was always clear. You know, you were always a passionate supporter of Remembrance Day. And it was interesting, for example, finding out, you know, that your your family history in that way. So have you ever reflected and just a theoretical question here, could you have imagined being in a situation like World War One, like your great grandfather was? I I don't oh it's tricky. I don't think I can imagine it in the sense that you know, I can't really put myself in in his shoes or their shoes, but I can I can understand the situation and actually having you know played in a in a team and talked to a lot of um, ex-military or military types and individuals and had training camps down there. There are very similar types of mindset around training and that whole attitude towards crossing the white line or you know leaving the base or the compound you switch from one personality to another and the sense of camaraderie. And, and for me, you know, playing sport and rugby in particular, you know, because it's so combative, I think my intrinsic characteristics, my real natural characteristics are over loyalty and protection. You know, if I boil down onto it. So what better way to, you know, to get in terms of rugby as a sport the way I played the game was about using my body as a tool to, to benefit the team or protect others around me. That's how I, that's how I reacted. It was also why I got into a little bit of a scrape against Samoa and ended up getting sent off. But, um, but that was just a protective nature. It's like, how dare you attack one of my mates? You know, that's yeah. not, that's not right. So that, that got me in bother sometimes, but, um, but yeah, so I can, I can really understand why, you know, so many people would have gone together and, and how connecting it was, in some way as an experience that you know all these pals battalions that were there in world war one you know they were there for each other people talk about loyalty to club in sport but actually for me it's loyalty to the individuals you know it was it was never the club i loved 
playing for England or Leicester or Bath or whatever, but it was those blokes on the field. And yeah, I, I can imagine it, it would have been it would have been similar. But ideally, I don't understand how they dealt with the adverse. Like how you dealt with every waking moment if you're in the front line, potentially being your last moment on the earth. You know how you process that. I, that that I will never be able to get my head around. That's what fascinates me, and, and the stuff that they had to deal with to to get through those situations. But mate, I tell you now, being being the RFUs, it's a bit of a mouthful. Being the RFUs Great War Ambassador from 2014 2018 was just one of the most singularly wonderful privileges of my life. So I got to commemorate all the England internationals that died in World War One, and we went and did a trip around the the, the graves in France and, and Belgium. Of the, I think there was only 22 commemorated there. The others, uh, the other five are abroad. Um, but getting to visit them felt like you know a real nice culmination in terms of the journey that I'd been on with this, um, from my great grandfather who went over with the BEF in 1914, to seeing you know to to an interest being taken around the the battlefields in France prior to the World Cup in 2011, and as a side that were really not together, it felt like that started to stimulate much more of a team environment and an understanding and an empathy for us and then you know coming coming full circle to seeing the lads the names in the change room as you entered Twickenham every time you know those 27 and the and I think it was the 12 from World War Two, and then to finally be able to sort of pay my respects respects properly to them felt like a uh, you know a closing of the circle which was uh, which was really nice and a really pleasing part to be able yeah. to play on behalf of the RFU. Yeah, no, that's beautiful. And it's clear that camaraderie and, like you say, playing for the people around you. So we, as opposed to me, whether it be your rugby career or what you've done since retiring, mm. I think that really comes through to me. Um, yeah, You said, you know, you, well, there's I've got a quote here from Martin Johnson. And he says, when you retired, he said, when I look back at playing with Lewis, it always brings a smile to my face. It was never dull one of the most committed guys with a complete disregard for his own well-being. And you you were known for, as you say, playing like a lunatic. But the reason you were happy to do that was because it was for something bigger than yourself. It was for the people around you. So it was, there was purpose to it. It, it. You were contributing to a cause. And it made me, I mean, it might seem a little um, far-fetched to, to quote Viktor Frankl at this point, but he he did come out with that quote that those who have a why can bear any almost how. And it, it got me thinking that that does somewhat reflect your approach to rugby. You had your why, which was the people around you, the people that you were you're trying to support, your mates, your, your team. It's very clear that's a huge driving force in your life generally and, and has been a trend throughout your life. Yeah, and you know what, Simon? I really wish you'd been around to have a conversation when I finished playing in 2012 because one of the things that I struggled with when I when I retired was actually everyone kept going, you know, you've got such a natural skill set, you know, being a leader, you know, you've played for so many years, you know, all these sorts of things. You must have so many natural skills that you'll just cross over. I was like, oh, wow, wicked, this is going to be great. But, but then, you know, no one actually <laughs> sat down and went, well, here's what they are, you know, or I didn't sit down and go, okay, can you help give me an understanding of what they might be and then how I can use them? Because that's what, and if you talk about imposter syndrome, which you mentioned earlier, you know, if I had imposter syndrome, it was around leadership. I loved playing the game for the reasons you've just very colorfully and, and put into brilliant words described. Um, so the thought of actually being a leader, which in my mind, having played under Martin Johnson and, and having seen Clive Woodward and, and all these guys. And, and Jono had a photographic memory. He could 
you know, he could recall moments of games that he played in from you know whatever age and whatever year, who he played against, what the score was in the game at any given moment. You know, I didn't have any of that. You know, and and I felt that I suppose when I was in that position or put in positions of uh, responsibility or not responsibility but leadership, maybe that I was a bit of an imposter because I didn't feel like I had the natural skill sets of a leader. Because as it as it transpires, as you rightly point out, that my skill sets were around interpersonal skills you know helping motivate people you know working with groups um, caring for people yeah yeah empathy kindness vulnerability you know lots of words that i would never place in the in the pocket of a leader but actually you know of course all those things come into into a leadership style but also is about being me as a leader rather than trying to be someone else so yes. it was always a it wasn't always a yeah it was, it was something that i i struggled with and probably still do to a little bit but um but it's funny you say that. So just to put in, because the things you've mentioned there, empathy, authenticity, caring about other people, you know, in your case as well, you know, you were putting your body on the line. So you were, it wasn't like over you go, boys. It was like, follow me. I, I'm head first into this. Yeah. And it's easy to think that perhaps you need to have these, whether it be a photographic memory or I don't know, let's say in a business environment, I don't know, perhaps have, have this grand strategic mind or whatever yeah. it may be because i've been invited to a few leadership talks recently and i always think that to what will carling told me and he said that he asked an army cadet captain he was like what what, what is what makes a good leader and he said it, it's fairness and caring about other people and that's basically it and you have that in spades yeah which is the key quality right yeah and but you know the sadness is i didn't realize it at the time i suppose when i came into the captaincy with england i was i was towards the last stages of my career and it's one of the things I wish I would have done. I wish I would have had more confidence to put myself forward to it as a, at a younger age so that, you know, some, I, the things I learned from being captain, they were so good. You know, I love reflecting on on my limitations and my weaknesses. And actually, they taught me loads, but I didn't have the ability to be able to put them into practice because, you know, I had to retire, what was I, 32? Maybe I was 33. I can't remember now. 33, I think. Thanks, mate. <laughs> as I said, you're going to know me better than I will. And it's been such a joy in retirement in many ways, a challenge, a real big challenge from from the start. But to understand finally what those qualities are and, and how I can use them, you know, which is why I've gone into the, the charity and, and the work that I've done is just because everything that I do is about working with and supporting others. And that's really what gives me enjoyment in life. And I suppose yeah. I get to I get to the point where you know, there was, the, or I have others around me that, that are very driven by the financial reward. So there were times in my career where I was like, okay, I've got to make sure, you know, I'm, I'm focused on the money. But it was never, it, it never felt like that was, that we, well, it would, never was a driving force for me. The money was irrelevant. But it felt like, because others were like that, I, okay, that should, that should factor into my, and then I felt, okay, when I'm not bothered about the money and someone offers me a load of money to go to some sort of sponsorship thing or whatever, and actually I'm not bothered about that. You know, what does that reflect on me? Is that, is, and I was really going through such a process of self sort of discovery during my playing days and, and in retirement. And we, and I still am. Of, of course. But you're so young as a player, though. That's the thing, isn't it? I mean, yeah. like you say, you retired at 33. I mean, I had all sorts of questions rattling around my head at 33. Not to say that I'm hugely older than that, but, but you know, like, <laughs> no, uh, I've got my professional age, but, but it is interesting. I think, um, you know, so do you now appreciate that you are a leader because of those qualities you have? 
Yes, I still think I have a I have a degree of you know, not imposter syndrome, but but there's there's a part of me that will always have that sort of self doubt around that element of my life. But um, I have I have gained a much better clarity in terms of my skill sets and, and how useful they are, and actually that you know. So with the with the foundation, I'm sure we'll chat about that. You know, mm. going off around the world and and taking groups of different people from different backgrounds and, and supporting them on a journey, you know, whether it's the North Pole, South Pole, wherever we go, bike ride. It has dawned on me that those qualities are what people want to see, you know. Yeah, yeah, sure. And there's, there's lots of stuff that I need to, I need to develop as well. But, um, but yeah, it's been a really good learning curve retirement for me, mate. And, and, and it's helped me get to a place of not quite contentment, but peace, which I, which I didn't have for a long time when, when I retired. I had a real frustration from, really? from exiting the game, yeah. But I think it's interesting what you said about looking at other leaders and thinking, oh, they do this this way and therefore I should do it that way. Yeah. And I think that's very common in all areas. Like I know when I started as a sports broadcaster, for example, and I would listen to other people and how they did it and I think that's how I should be doing it. And I think you can apply this in any area. But actually, I think the journey we all need to go on or all do go on to varying degrees, but ultimately it is the journey. It's just to become more ourselves those characteristics that you have it's to bring them even more to the surface isn't it rather than trying like you say trying to be someone else that never works for nobody so it's about authenticity really yeah mate and and that's the that's the word i think that's you know that's where i've got to in my life it's understanding what the authentic me looks like Mm. um and i think for a long time I, i felt like i was pretending to be something that i wasn't and why that leadership piece for me Maybe sat uncomfortably, 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 because I was trying to be a leader that uh, I wasn't, and you know, and and how leadership was modelled in the various different guises of the military or or the macho rugby environment didn't necessarily feel like it, it was me. So all of a sudden, I f- I understand what an authentic Lewis Moody looks like, an authentic yeah. leadership, you know, work. Uh, all those, all those qualities. I'm getting such a better understanding of myself around. But, um, but you have to. Oh, I think you almost actually had to come out of rugby to be able to understand that because you are so conditioned in those environments to be the the alpha male, to be so competitive. You know, yeah. that sort of inner competitive nature is always there anyway, right? And that's that's probably why I struggled with the elements after retirement. But, um, but yeah, I, authenticity is is key now. But also with the people you surround yourself with, or I surround myself with. I don't need all the bullshitters. I don't just don't need that in my life. You know, it doesn't doesn't resonate with me at all. And you know, you can see through it. I think and uh, oh, yeah. authentic people make life more enjoyable as well. Hundred percent. Let's go back then, Lewis. You were known as Mad Dog, which is a fantastic nickname. Yeah. When you played mini rugby, so what you started at five, right? Were you a nutcase from the get go? Well, it depends what you describe nutcase as, mate. But I love tackling. For a fly-off like me, that's a nutcase, mate. <laughs> I love the physical, mate. I just love the physical. I, the first session back then was full contact. You know, it was not like now when the kids ease into it and there's, you know, right, there's all the different progressions that you go through until you get to do it. Yeah, it, yeah. Was, it was straight in, full contact, mate. And when you were like a good five inches bigger than everyone else and probably, uh, you know, a couple of kgs heavier, <laughs> the full contact was brilliant. And I absolutely loved it. I was so competitive uh, at all sports, but as I said, I had this intrinsic love of people. And and when I when you when you put a sport with a love of people that was about 
battering the opposition for the benefit of your team. I was like, without knowing it, I was like, this is absolutely amazing. Give me more. So uh, I, th- I think it was it was pretty natural that I was going to sort of, if rugby, if rugby turned professional during my career, which thankfully it did, I was going to I was going to go down that route. Right. Let's fast forward then. So you you were a centre for a long time. I, I can only imagine you would have been one of those you know vicious tackling centres that used to give me the heebie-jeebies because I was a I was a number ten for my school. Very quick hands, even if I do say so myself. Jinking feet, <laughs> hell of a sidestep, but. When it came to the rough stuff against the big lads, that, not so much my cup of tea. So I would have hated to play against you. But uh, you were the turnstile, mate, of, of defence, were you? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but then you, so you're at university. I don't know what what point you switched to to, to the back row, but you did. Yeah. And well, whilst- mate, I can tell you, I can tell you exactly actually what point because it was when I was on a. So I'd, I'd tried to break through in the centres into the county and Midlands setup, or first into the county. And I kept getting knocked back at all the final trials, um, which was pretty devastating because it was obviously the one thing that I loved. You know, I was not academic. I really struggled. I wasn't stupid, but I struggled academically because I just couldn't engage with it. So rugby gave me real happiness. And to be failing at it was, was a real kick in the plums. So during my final trial for the England, no, for the Leicester under-16s county squad, my school coach, who was also on the committee, moved me and said, look, let's give him a go in the back row because he loves tackling. He loves a crash ball. <laughs> um, you know, he doesn't mind jackling. Basically, he's a natural flanker. Um, <laughs> so they put me in the back row, mate, and it was like an epiphany in that yeah. one moment. And it was and it was Brian Welford and it was Andy Wilson, my two school coaches. And, and it's because of them that I ended up, again, you know, talk about epiphany or, or good pieces of coaching or whatever. My stubbornness would have would have meant I would have continued trying to make it as a centre, but their enlightenment allowed me to see another opportunity, and uh, and I never looked back, mate. I loved it. Although I did try and get Dean Richards and John Wells, my Leicester coaches in the nineties and early two thousands, to to promise me a game in the in the centres, which which John Wells did, but then it, then he left about <laughs> two months after he said that, which is devastating. <laughs> That's funny. And so you were known as a fly half's nightmare as open side. But you made your debut, didn't you? What, when you were 18 years old? It was, again, it was a weird, it was a weird emotion. Because um, my my school coach, my first team coach was a guy called Ian Dosser-Smith at that time, who was also a, a Leicester Tigers legend of 300 appearances. And he'd had barbarians and all sorts. And so I had a huge amount of respect for him and, and he was my coach and he was also the coach of the Tigers at the time. So I was in the changing room with him before the game. So essentially I was still a schoolboy. I was like literally two months, hold on, what was it, finished in yeah, two and a half months. I think the, the pre-season game that I played in was August. And so I would have left school in June, July. So literally within months of watching all these guys sitting in the stands with him, I'm now, I've gone to training for what, a couple of couple of weeks, maybe six weeks now I'm running out. I'm going to be running out of Welford Road where I was just sat in the stands. I'm listening in the in the change rooms, all the noise above, those stamping feet. Literally felt like my heart was going to explode out of my chest. It was almost overwhelming. But because Dossa was there, he was able to like calm my nerves and actually go, mate, look, 
what you're going to be feeling is that your heart is about to explode out of your chest. And I was like, that is exactly what I'm feeling right now. He's like, that's normal. Don't worry about it. You're good enough to be here. You deserve, you deserve this opportunity. Uh, he didn't say you deserve to be here, but he said, I deserve the opportunity. Yeah. Um, and he just said, go out and enjoy it. And he said three things, which he, but he'd obviously, obviously hadn't been my coach for a year. He knew what I was about. He's like, all you need to know is this three things, tackle. Yeah. Tackle. Yeah. That sounds like the first one. But yeah, go on. What's the last one? Tackle. And that is honestly, that was his team. That was his sort of motivational. But it was so good because as for me as an individual, now when I look back and I can joke about it, but actually it just really focused my mind on one mm. simple thing. It was the area that I was I was best at. And just do that well and the rest of your game will fall into place. And you know, I ended up scoring two tries on my debut at Welford Road, which is just oh, incredible. Wow. I remember Rory Underwood. So Rory, I caught the ball. And Rory was outside me. I looked to pass it to him and he was like that. No, no, you go, you go. I was like on the halfway line. I was like, oh my God, as a flanker. And there was a, there was a Scottish winger called Ivan, uh, Ivan Tukalo who'd, uh, who'd, you know, who'd, who'd played in the Six Nations just prior to that. And I actually, uh, I out-sprinted him on that day to the, to the try line, which I was incredibly proud about. Mate, what a debut. What a debut. Sadly, it didn't go quite so well after that <laughs> for a few years. But, but um, it, was, it was a great experience, yeah. Yeah, that sounds uh, pretty overwhelming. Let me tell you, let me tell you go about my, my, my league debut, which yeah, would have come at Christmas. Neil Back got banned for pushing Steve Lander over. So that opened up a door for a couple of the other older guys that were ahead of me. They both got injured. So at Christmas, you know, still at the age of 18, I was the, the, the next incumbent back rower. Went up to Oral. But mate, it, it couldn't have gone any any worse. Like literally, I was like a schoolboy in a man's world. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the realities of the friendly had long gone. I was, you know, I was getting thrown around. I was doing everything wrong. I gave an offload out the back after John. I said, right, look, whatever we do, we just keep the ball for a little bit, get it down the other end. I made a break. Thought I'd do the flash, Harry. He, you know, look at me, lads. Hit Jono in the forehead, which obviously wasn't difficult. I was an imposing <laughs> forehead. But then, I mean, it just mate, it just went downhill. And you know when you've just had a bad game, you're like, okay, first game, it would just continue the same as the first game, right? I got nailed at the first game and, and I couldn't have got it more wrong. My approach to the game was completely off. My professionalism, my training, everything was off. I was still a kid. It was going to take a couple of years for me to, to understand what it was going to take. Going forward a few years, but so by the time of 2001, when you had sort of established yourself and Josh Cronfer, wasn't it? The the Kiwi uh, back rower turned up at Leicester and there was, I mean, I don't know to what degree this is true, but there was speculation that, you know, he could, he could starve you of a place in the side and you were given some offers to move elsewhere, but you decided to stay and fight for your place, which proved the right decision. You know, a lot of other people would have legged it in that situation. So what what were you thinking then? Um, how did you feel about someone of that stature coming in? Uh, you know, and what did you learn from that experience, you know, of staying to fight for your place and, and actually winning it, essentially? Um, it was really interesting. So it was 2000, I think it was 2001. I felt that I was, I'd sort of gone backwards, if anything. I'd had a really, I'd had a good couple of years with, with Leicester. We'd won a couple of titles. And then all of a sudden, come this season, I was I was on the bench in the 2001 European final and the league final. And we were then going on tour. So that summer, I actually asked if I could go on on loan. There was an England tour because the Lions, so the Lions went off to was it Australia. Mm, and there was a yeah. sort of second second string England tour. I didn't know if I'd get on that. So look, I just said to Dean, could you, could you release me to go and 
play in South Africa so I can get some experience and, and prove that I'm I'm good enough because at the minute I'm getting overlooked. I knew Josh Cronfeld was coming. I was already, you know, behind Neil Back and a couple of other lads. I didn't see any window of opportunity at Leicester and he event he you know, he ultimately just said, Yeah mate, that's a, that's a good idea. You can go away for as you know, as long as you want, which wasn't exactly uh, the positive. Uh, <laughs> Not a ringing indoors. <laughs> yeah, I never wanted to leave Leicester. Mate. No. I never, Leicester was my schoolboy club. It was all I'd known. So I was, I was prepared to, to disappear off and you know go and have a summer in uh, in South Africa and, and start fighting for my uh, my opportunity over there. I ended up getting called up onto the England tour. I, I went as sort of third or fourth choice, seven. It was like Andy Hazel and a couple of other guys around at the time. And for whatever reason, so John Wells, who was my Leicester coach, Ford's coach, was also the England coach on that tour with Clive Woodward. You know, for whatever reason, Andy Hazel played in the Barbars game. The team didn't do so well, which maybe reflected on uh, on Hayes. So for the first test against Canada, I got the starting jersey. And it was just a real, it was one of those tours, you know, when I don't know whether it was frustration or or a desire to show people what I was capable of, but... I was so focused because in my first England tour in 98, I got it so wrong. You know, I got in with the wrong characters. I'd gone boozing all the time. I just really, you know, I enjoyed it, but for all the, for all the wrong reasons. I, I said to myself after that tour, if I got the opportunity again, I'd, I'd make sure I got it right. So in 2001, when I got that opportunity, you know, when the lads are off, you know, the, the America tours were always seen as a bit of a dos. When the lads are off out, you know, clubbing or whatever, I was back in bed, you know, in the mornings when people were having lions. I was in doing recovery. Uh, I was doing whatever it took for me to feel like I could, I could get that starting place, and and it paid off, mate. I got got the first first start, and, and I never looked back. It just, it was like an epiphany. It just felt all the stars had aligned, and I had three test matches, and I and I was, I was just on fire, and and after that, you know, having gone from essentially being loaned out by Dean and Lester. Um, because you know they didn't see a place for me. All of a sudden, I was on holiday in Dubai after that tour, and I was getting phone calls from Dean, you know, daily. You know, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? I was like, oh no. And the, the strange thing for me, and I think we spoke earlier about, you know, what you're driven by, and it was a real realization early on in my career that money had nothing to do with it for me. And I got two offers. One was essentially what do you want type offer, and the other was from Zinzanbrook. Uh, who'd just taken over at Quinn's, who was like a schoolboy hero as yeah, well. Yeah, New Zealand legend, yeah. Yeah, when I met Zinni, chatted with him, and that sounded really exciting, you know, what they were looking to do. Obviously, they were both brilliant players, right? And and an offer from one of the other clubs, which is essentially, look, we give you 200 grand. Bearing in mind, I was on like, I would have been on probably 20 at that time. I was like, what? This is crazy. But it really focused my my thinking. So A, the fact that Leicester were now trying to, recall me and wanted to know what I wanted to do. The fact that I was attractive to other clubs was, I suppose, confidence building. And the thought process I went through after chatting to my dad and uh, and Dossa, so Ian Dossa Smith again, it just became clear that actually this was this is a great opportunity. I've got the two I've got the world's two best open sides. They're two completely contrasting characters. One's militant, totally driven and focused, you know, weighs his food, you know, folds his clothes, you know, absolutely backy josh literally turns up with a sort of tesco bag full of clothes from new zealand and the most chilled out laid-back human being you've ever met but was i think was he the most valuable player in the world cup in 95 and all of a sudden this opportunity to learn off these two guys presented itself i was like do you know what this is too good an opportunity to miss so um 
and and I suppose a little bit of the the fact that it meant I could fight for my place really excited me. I could really push, and that bit of pressure, that added motivation, culminated in me playing some of the best years of of well, the best rugby of my uh, my career between sort of two thousand and one and two thousand and four. I suppose there's so much to take from that. First of all, learning the lessons that you did from the tour in ninety eight. So you actually reflected and were honest with yourself taking responsibility for your performance and saying look if I'm if I'm going to get a chance again I'm going to really give it everything no excuses and you did you went above and beyond like you said everyone else would be out you'd be head down and up first thing in the morning and then to actually make a decision where your intuition is like it's not about the money I'm valuing this opportunity to challenge myself to learn and grow it sounds like it was a very clear decision to you but to a lot of people in that position they would have gravitated towards the money yet you made this decision based on what felt right and it proved to be the best decision you could make that to me really speaks for the power of of listening to your gut and your intuition yeah and I think you know it's often often in life I've made mistakes by not doing that and mm. mistakes by doing it. But um, but it was it was a wonderful moment to have clarity around my thought process and around what my goals were at that age as a as a young man in rugby. And so I suppose make the decision and then see them come to fruition was even better. And there was a bit of serendipity in there again, a bit of fortune, luck, whatever you call it. First game of the season and Josh had a had a niggle in the warm up. And he had a floating bit of bone. I wanted to hate Josh Cronfeld with every part of my being when he turned up. But he was such a good guy. I couldn't. I got on so well with him. And I was really gutted for him in that first game. Generally, I was like, he, he had this bit of floating bone. He couldn't free it in his ankle. And I remember him saying to me, he's like, mate, I'm, I'm not going to be able to play. I was like, oh, okay. Suddenly I had to get my head on. And, and from that moment, basically, you know, Josh, Josh didn't get back in the team. And, you know, I, and part of me hated that because he was such a wonderful player. Yeah, interesting. Would you say that you are an intuitive person and you mentioned like not listening to your gut? The older I've got, the more I've realized, the more I listen to my gut, the more decisions I seem to get right. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think, you yeah, know, there's plenty of opportunities where, uh, where you've almost convinced yourself out of what felt right. I think if it feels right, it normally is right. You know, you have an intuitive decision-making process and normally you convince yourself otherwise. And sometimes that's for a good reason. It's almost like if you walk past something that you see as unacceptable, a behavior, an action, and in that moment, what do you do? You know it feels wrong. You know it looks wrong. You know, do you act on it or, or do you allow it? Do you allow it just to walk past and, you know, ignore it, it become the norm, accept it, let that person accept it, or do you address it? And and I suppose for me, how I, how I operate in that moment is, is if it feels wrong, then it is wrong. Yeah, yeah. And then someone gave me a good, great tip once. It was, it was in those moments, use, he said, just use 10 seconds of bravery. He said, because ultimately that's what's happening in your mind. Your mind's trying to convince you of something, not, you know, reason not to step in or not to say something. But if you use 10 seconds of bravery, then invariably you will, you will act on that moment in the right way as well. How would someone listening be able to apply that 10 seconds of bravery in, in, decision making in everyday life like how would you how would you explain that to someone listening can you just sort of elaborate a little bit on that yeah um yeah it's a good question let, let me see I, um so if you see if you see your favorite celebrity walking down the street they're on the other side of the road and every part of you is like oh my god this is going to be the one time in my life where i can wait have the opportunity because i can just cross the road and say hello 
And do you mind signing this autograph for me? That's a good example of 10 seconds. Because I know I've done it with people that I've met, right? I've seen them. And knowing what it's like to, to be approached by people, I will always try and engage with anyone that approaches me. And obviously now I am not a celebrity. I'm not trying to say that. No, you but are, when, I, when, I was a, when I was a famous rugby player in, you know, in my heyday, you know, it, was, it was a pleasure that people came and asked me. Sometimes it, it became tiring because it happened a lot. But actually, it was always still a privilege. So I still doubted myself in that moment when I saw one of my heroes. And I was like, oh, should I go do it? And I didn't do it. And I eternally regretted it. It's yeah. like, okay, just take 10 seconds. What is, what's the worst that can happen in that moment? Yeah, yeah. I suppose that's, that's maybe a very easy one to look at, right? Yeah. Not it's that, old, it's that old classic, isn't it? You don't, re- you don't regret the things that you do. It's the, re- it's yeah. the things you don't do. And it does become yeah. easier, I think, th- those kind of things. I, I'm, a, I'm dreadful at that. Like when I was at the BBC, when I was at Radio 1, anyone who came in, big name, even if I didn't know who they were, I was straight up there telling them I was their biggest fan, you know, like I almost <laughs> took that to the nth degree. But yeah, I totally agree with you. And, and it becomes like a habit, doesn't it? Bravery yeah. in that situation becomes like a habit. Yeah. It becomes easier and easier. It's just broadening your comfort zone, really. Right. Let's yeah. let's talk. Let's talk 2003. Uh, I, I want to just touch on 2003 and then injuries and then we'll get into your foundation. But let's talk 2003 because the stars somewhat aligned, didn't they, a bit for you? Because you'd, you know, I mean, we'll talk about your injuries and how much you'd struggle, but you ended up playing every single game of the World Cup in 2003. And people talk about, obviously, Johnny slotting the drop goal, Matt Dawson's dummy and break. But let's not forget, the key, the key part of any move is always the start of the move. You were the man chucking in that line out, landing it on an absolute penny. So oh, yeah, no, I was I wasn't chucking it in. That would have been sorry. Stupid. You were catching it. Catching you were catching it. it. Yeah. Sorry, that's what I mean. Catching, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> throwing and catching. <laughs> yeah, you were catching the ball at the back, uh, yeah. which led to the key the key bit in that moment when you caught the ball. Were you nervous? Like, what was or, or was it just by that point? Were you just like in the zone? No, mate. I mean. It was really weird, and I try and, and sometimes it's really difficult to decipher what's reality from what's the stories that I've told so many times, and I've heard people tell them, and I was in it so many times. In my memory, you know, it was it was really simple. My nerves were. So I was on the bench that game. Um, I was really frustrated prior to the, the World Cup because I I'd, I'd been picked ahead of Lawrence. I'd been picked ahead of Backy to start the autumn games. I'd been picked ahead of. Uh, I can't remember which one of them it was to start the Six Nations and in that first game I knackered my shoulder yeah. those boys then came back together and, and that was it you know the Holy Trinity were, were together and they were going to stay and so part of me is a little bit gutted that I never had that opportunity to see whether I could have been the starter but anyway mm. so we got through that World Cup we ended up in that in that final was I nervous coming off the bench I was I was hating every minute of being on the bench because all I wanted to do was get on the pitch and make a difference and then as the game got closer and Elton flatly kicked all his goals and Johnny got his and there's like a point either side I got I got really anxious and the gremlins creep in you know and those those negative sort of automatic thoughts that you're trying to repress and and deal with in the in the back of your mind and that's a part of not being in control so as soon as I was told right you're going to go on I was up and I was excited get me on the pitch I was still anxious I was still nervous because I didn't want to make a mistake you know but as soon as I crossed the line, I was into it. That was that's my com- that's your comfort zone, right? There, there's the things you're in control of: my actions, my mm. my work rate, uh, my you know my attitude to the rest of that game. And 
and the ball landed in my hands and the rest was history. But the the line out itself, so Martin Johnson and Lawrence sort of simultaneously gave away the penalty that allowed Elton Flatley to kick mm. to kick the, the ball that drew us level. Yeah. And the piece that I remember most, and I hope it's because I remember it rather than the <laughs> stories that I've heard so yeah, many yeah. times. And it's difficult to decipher and I mean that honestly, but Jono was such a brilliant leader and despite the fact that he gave away that penalty under the post, there was no doubt, there was no confusion, there was nothing. There was a minute 30 left on the clock and because we had rehearsed this a million times, Jono just said, lads, look, right, simple, we're going to kick the ball off. Um, Mudos, you'll put pressure on on Matt Rogers um, and we'll get the ball back and we'll play from there and we'll go into zigzag and zigzag was the pattern that we used to get Johnny in a position to, to drop the goal and uh and I, th- I hope it was zigzag. That's what I've always said. You know, know, now, it, I can confirm it is zigzag. Yeah, it was it zigzag. Is and, Johnny, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and mate, what I loved about that moment was the clarity that Jono had and that there was no fear, there was no confusion, there was no nerves. And everything that he said transpired. Johnny kicked the ball long. Um, George Smith sort of gathered it. I ended up tackling him, actually, and managing to get myself out of the rut quick enough to then put pressure on Matt. He scuffed the kick. We had the line out. So there, there were no nerves because Clive, again, I said about Clive being a brilliant manager, you know, he had prepared every scenario at the end of, mm. you know, what was it going to take to win that World Cup when we were the best side in the world going in? It was, it was going to come down to probably the last couple of minutes or the final play. Therefore, we just rehearsed all those eventualities and training. So when it happened, we actually, we'd been through it a million times. Didn't mean that it went, <laughs> it went swimmingly yeah. but um but yeah mate it was so ultimately and honestly I, I didn't have any nerves I didn't understand the pressure I was under so this is this was- is a beautiful point so just to yeah. pick pick up a couple of things first of all obviously like you say Clive Woodward's attention to detail as he spoke about in the pod I recorded with him so his teacup thinking correctly under pressure and yeah. really rehearsing all the scenarios and it makes me think of well, other people have told me that, you know, preparation is confidence. But then you mentioned when you were on the bench and you've got these gremlins because, like you say, you've got thoughts coming in about what might happen in the future or, or what could go wrong, what could go right. And then you come on and you're fully present, you know, and yeah. you're in reality. So you're not imagining reality. You're in reality suddenly. Yeah. And Johnny Wilkinson told me a really interesting thing, which was that, at that moment, he sensed that everyone in the team as one, there was no resistance to reality. Like it was just, there was like, there was almost this wanting to be tested. He want, it was like with the, like you said, the kick that went over to make it 17 all. Jo- Johnny said he sensed within the team there was this, we want him to kick this over because we want to win this. We don't want to win it because they've lost it. And, you know, it just sounds like throughout this spread through the whole team because obviously the team had been through you know, what, like Grand Slam final defeats, nearly lost to Wales, nearly lost to Samoa, all these things. And then all of a sudden, at the right moment, all of you are like, we've got this. We're equipped to deal with with any eventuality. And I think that says a lot about, you know, when we are present, we can deal with what's in front of us. It's only the imagination of what might happen. That's the stuff you can't deal with, which is what you were going through on the bench. Do you know but, I mean? but, well, absolutely, yeah. So once you're in control of it, it's fine. But we also had an absolute belief in in what we were doing. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't um, 
you know, it wasn't dreamy. You know, we weren't, we didn't just, because anyone can believe they're going to go yeah, out exactly. and be world champions. Or do so, but we had an inner, an innate inner belief because we had proven we could do it on numerous occasions. You know, it was that, it was those times we'd found ourselves behind against, you know, Australia and had to claw it back ahead against New Zealand and had to hold a defence. We'd proven it in those games and even against Wales in the, yeah. during the course of that tournament, a team that we'd beaten by like 40 points in a warm-up game yeah. eight weeks before. Were we behind or were we yeah, just you, ahead? You, no, you, you were behind until... We were behind yeah, at yeah. half-time. Yeah, yeah. And it was all going tits up, quite frankly. Yeah, yeah. But even in those moments, there was never, and certainly in my mind, I can only really speak for myself, but there was, it never, ever felt like we were going to lose. Never in any stage during that window between 2002 and winning in 03 was there a game I went into with England that I felt we'd lose, even if we were 20 points down. And that was the innate belief that we were able to create, which allowed us to deliver from what you were saying with Johnny there. The fact that we didn't worry about it yeah. for me was the key. It was like, if he gets it, it's fine, mate. Like, this is what we're going to do next and we'll still go win it anyway. So yeah, it was yeah, like, yeah. Just, wow. And, and never, never again in my career did we gain that same level of clarity or cohesion on the, on the playing surface with a group of individuals that were so focused on, on a singular purpose, you know, that collective goal. It was a wonderful time to be on a rugby pitch when oh, yeah. the final whistle goes on a, on a in a world cup final even as a fan you know i can speak about what a wonderful moment it was but I, I read a quote though that you were in the changing rooms after the final and the feeling you had was there was this euphoria but it was followed by a numbness of okay so what now what were you like 25 or something like that and johnny said a similar thing dave allred who was there said a similar thing um, yeah, yeah, he said. He said within. We should probably chat about these things, Simon, with, with like with with our teammates. <laughs> yeah. You would have thought we would have done that. Yeah, no, it's all got to come second hand. But it's interesting yeah. that a lot of you sort of went through this experience, and it does seem to be one that's, I think, really uh, informative. Is that people reach this this goal and they suddenly think it's going to be right? That's it. I'm I'm set for life. But actually, no. You know, yes, you get that high, the euphoria. But then that the what now question quickly follows. Did that make you question then what it was all about? And what did that what did you then reflect back and learn about what what was the most valuable thing about about that journey to winning in two thousand and three? Um it, it is really interesting. And that emotion that you you get after a final, I didn't expect to have after the World Cup final. We'd we'd won with Leicester, we'd had two European Cup finals, I think four premierships by that stage. Mm. So we knew what winning was about. And I only ever imagined that after a World Cup final, you'd have elation, which which ultimately when the final whistle goes, you do very briefly. Yeah. You know, unbridled elation and, and pure emotion, emotional reaction to that. But yeah, it is replaced within seconds by a numbness that is like, what do we do? Literally, what do we do now? Like, how do I live the rest of my career trying to beat this? It's not possible. Yeah. And I suppose the reflection that I, I took from it was that, what I really, really enjoyed about playing rugby was the journey to the success. Yeah. Was the, the 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 medals and the and all that stuff, and they are here in my, in in a bag in my in my office. Is that they don't mean anything, you know? Yeah. You know, they really don't. The journey and the and the individuals and the memories and the work and that means everything. And it was only when I went to the ten year reunion for '03 that we saw. For the first time, or I saw for the first time, they played up on the on the TVs that were around photos from training in the World Cup camp, and I was like, "Oh my god, I remember that!" 
and I and I hadn't reflected on it, and I just saw that you know the pain, the sessions that we were going through, the you know the the effort, the work ethic that we put in to get to where we were, and, and that awful you know whether people were throwing up or breaking pieces or getting stitched or sitting in ice baths or doing minging training sessions that went on for hours. And I mean, those were the pieces that made the success so enjoyable and that made you want to keep the medal and go, you know what, that is really special. Yeah. yeah. So the medal just represents the experiences that you had with those guys along the way. And then actually it stopped when the whistle went in a way it was everything leading up to the point at which yeah. rather than the point where you expect it to happen which i think is so For interesting me, isn't it absolutely absolutely that is it you know the the journey that goes into the success that's that's the enjoyable bit and i suppose i don't know whether it's the same as if you're putting up a garden fence and and you're putting up a garden fence and the reason you enjoy it at the end is it might have taken you all day you look back and go, oh, do you know what? That was really worth it. Yeah, that, that was, was a hell of a shift. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 yeah do I don't it. know whether it has the same level of uh, enjoyment at the end of it, but, you know, it, it's probably, there's probably a, a similar sort of mindset to it. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. If we move, skip it forward to 2007, and I know you've said that in some ways this was even more enjoyable than 2003, and let's not forget that England had got absolutely shellacked in the first match. What, you were beaten about 50-0, weren't you, by South Africa? 36-0, but it was close enough. Well, it felt like 50 as a fan. I remember yeah. that. Um, and then, but you ca- you didn't play in the first few matches and then you came on, didn't you, in the last group game. And basically yeah. that shifted the momentum. And thereafter, there was again that kind of, uh, it was weird. I remember watching it as a fan and there was that sense of inevitability about, you know, oh, you're going to play Australia. Oh, you're going to play France. On form, Australia and France should win. But the England suddenly had rediscovered itself. And you've spoken about, again, the joy of, of winning matches. 
that you weren't supposed to and then being in the dressing room and sharing that with your teammates yeah and i mean that was the 07 was really special for for totally different reasons like 2003 was professional prepared planned and delivered you know it was a concept there was a strategy it was a four year plan and and 07 was the polar opposite there was no strategy <laughs> there was no planning you know and that's why i don't mean that disrespectfully because obviously there was planning but it all went tits up you know we we had a new coach 6 months before the tournament um and, and Brian Ashton, who I believe would be a brilliant coach, you know, if he'd been put in charge of us maybe a year after the World Cup. But we were so indoctrinated in a style of play under Clive that I think we found it difficult to adapt to his to his ideas. And like you say, mate, I got an opportunity. I really struggled for that first. Andy Robinson, who I have a huge amount of respect for, wonderful forwards coach, brilliant England coach. Um, he called me after he lost the job as England coach after Clive and said, mate, you're going to have to work harder than you've ever worked. Brian Ashton doesn't rate you. He has tried to convince me not to pick you. He isn't going to pick you. So uh, I just wanted to let you know that. And I could never be more thankful to him because actually a lot of people wouldn't have said that to you because they thought that would be too damaging or actually it was exactly what I needed to hear because it took a lot of it took a lot of pressure off. It meant that I could just go out and play irrelevant. I could be playing the best game of my life. Brian Ashton still may not pick me. He took me on the tour. He didn't pick me for the first three games, as we said. <laughs> and the opportunity came in the last game anyway, so I had one of my better games. I got knocked out twice. I think that's actually where the nickname Mad Dog came from. Right. And Brian, Brian coined it in the press conference afterwards. And, you know, all of a sudden, it was quite a good lesson to me in the sense that I maybe put myself under too much pressure to perform sometimes. And the release that Andy's message gave to me was about actually just go out and play me. And the the... The rest of it is beyond your control. Yeah, yeah. My performance made Brian pick me. But that, the actual final, I would put that down to the coaches more than the players, actually, because they recognised that in each game we couldn't change everything. They just went, let's focus on one point. One point in each game from the quarterfinal to the final. The, the Australia game was the breakdown. And the France game was Boxies the kicker because he'd kicked numerous drop goals to keep him in the game. And South Africa, well, it was just a free for all, to be honest. I don't think we focused on any one thing. It was just like, go out and enjoy it. Lads. <laughs> yeah, the night before that game, actually, the, you know, in terms of changing things up, and Clive obviously, you know, brought the professional era to the England team. The night of the World Cup final in South Africa, or the night before, sorry, we'd done the team run. And we came back to the hotel. And obviously, normally you have the, you know, the, the nutrition plan, all the different options and stuff. And various different options that were available, like boiled chicken, the salads, the cold, the hot stuff, all super healthy, super nutritious to help you perform in the final next day. We got back and literally it was an array of takeaway. It was like Italian, Indian, and the, co the coaches, are, you know, and you look back at it now, it's like, what? so why did they do that? Because ultimately it didn't matter, right? We were never supposed to make the World Cup final. Yeah. We weren't going to make it out of the pool at one stage. So... What, what's most important? What's most important is that the lads have an enjoyable evening. They they feel good about themselves because whether they eat boiled broccoli and and oily fish the night before the World Cup final is not going to make any difference in this in this instance. Yeah. And I thought I thought it was brilliant. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. that is that is a masterstroke. Yeah, the other stuff was there, but it just changed things up enough to make us go, oh, it's great. Chill out a bit and just relax. <laughs> and you know, I don't think they had KFC or anything, but it was. Uh, but it, but it was a nice change after, and ultimately, mate, our World Cup final was was reaching the World Cup final that year. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, it was a hell of a journey. That I remember going from such a low point to the high point. But 
Yeah, I, I like what you said about Andy Robinson telling it to you straight there. And I think honesty is such a valuable thing. And if I just give a quick example from my own life. So uh, basically, um, I posted a, vi- a, a photo, my new um, uh, logo on Instagram a, f- a few weeks back. And there's a guy who helps me, does some editing and stuff. And he just sent me a message just going, I really don't like your head, new haircut, right? So I'm like, seriously? And he's like, yeah, no, no, I'm, I'm being really, really serious. And I thought, do you know what? I really like the fact that I know exactly where I stand with this guy. He's my go-to for any feedback on work stuff. You know, I think finding someone who will be totally honest with you, as Andy was in that situation with you, is just so valuable. And then, like you say, for you then, being able to let go of the outcome and you were just like, look, I'm just going to play. And in doing so, freed yourself up to be able to go and actually p- produce such impressive performances that really you you changed the momentum of the England team at that time. So, yeah, there's a couple of big lessons in there as far as I'm concerned. And you're totally right about that. And whether it's coaches or whoever it is, I, what I find difficult in life now is getting honest feedback. Mm. You know, so if you, if, whenever I've done commentary, let's say, more often than not, you, I, they'll just go, well, don't I? yeah, it's fine. Just yeah. just keep doing what you're doing. Well, what does keep doing what you're doing mean? I go, what keep doing? I might be doing bad stuff. So I might just keep doing, I don't know what, can you be slightly more specific? No, no, yeah, it's yeah. just fine. It's so difficult. Yeah, Whereas yeah. in the sporting world, you know, uh, it feels maybe more more so than other other areas that you you seem to get a a more honest take on it and a direct message that you can action. I, 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 totally, I totally agree. And I, yeah, I remember having a chat with uh, another friend of mine recently about, being kind and to me people can say things that they don't mean to spare people's feelings because they think that that's the kind thing to do you know oh yes I'm sure he likes he likes you she likes you or oh yes you know like you say yeah you're doing a great job even though perhaps you're not whereas actually I think the kind thing and perhaps I can there is a balance to be struck in terms of how blunt you are but I think it's much kinder to be honest with someone so they know where they stand with you. And I, I, yeah, I think, like you say, it can be hard to come by. People are like tiptoeing around and saying what people want to hear. But actually, that's not that valuable. It doesn't really help anybody. And it's not supportive either, actually. No. One, of the, one of the best comments I ever had was from my wife when I broke my ankle after. So I'd had two previous operations. I'd been out for a year and I fell on a ball in, in training and having just got back into the Leicester side and the England side, super excited dived on a loose ball, Alex Tuolangi tripped, fell on my ankle, broke in two places. I was going to be out for, you know, another three months. So it'd be almost, you know, a year and a half out of the game. And I just called my wife. I said, right, I can't be asked anymore. There's no way I can go through rehab again. I've had 10 operations to this point. I was, I think, 28. And I've, I'm going to retire. And she was like, uh, mate, you don't be so, don't be so stupid. What are you actually? She used some really colourful language that I'm I'm not prepared to say <laughs> on here. But she went, "Stop being so." And and in my like sort of in my shock, I was like, "What? What? What do you mean?" And she was like, she quantified by just saying, "Look, you know this. This is just this is just a moment. You're feeling sorry for yourself. Um, don't make an emotional response and decision based off of something that actually you know you can recover from." Yeah. Proven you can come back from time and time again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and if I hadn't, if I hadn't listened to it, and if I hadn't had that support, supportive advice, mm. I, um, 
I, I could have retired. I would have missed being England captain, another World Cup, another Premiership, you know, all those yeah, things. So. Yeah, we, no, I think hard hard truths are very valuable. Obviously, delivered with a a certain amount of tact and kindness is ideal. But yes, yeah, I'd take yeah, that yeah. all day long over someone telling me what I want to hear, you know, much more rather know where you want to stand with someone. And uh, feedback, feedback's an acquired skill, right? It's like a yeah. learned skill. Oh, 100%. After. But but it's so important. It is so important. Otherwise, you know, if we're going to grow, which is so important, you, you can't do it without feedback. Um, right, let's talk then just quickly about, because you, you, you touched on it there, your injuries. And I mean, you went through you, your injury list Obviously, Johnny's known for it, but your injury list is just as bad as his. How did you cope with, or what would be your advice for someone? Like you said, you, there were moments when you would, were keeping Lawrence Delalio, Neil back out the side, and you'd be on a good run, and then you'd pick up an injury, and they'd earn back their place. And so, all those times when you had these setbacks with these injuries, um, multiple times throughout your career. How, what advice would you give for anyone perhaps who, who goes through that in normal life about things are going fine, then all of a sudden the SHIT <laughs> hits the fan? Um, yeah, what, what, did you, <laughs> what did you learn? What did you learn from going through all those injuries and, and having a rebound and, and bounce back from them? Um, ultimately, I didn't put myself in those situations, right? So injury came about not not because I wanted it. But I, I very quickly in my career, I think when I was 22, I had my first operation, shoulder operation, had to learn how to deal with a setback. And <clears throat> the longer I played, the more times I was put in positions where I had to understand how to deal with those situations. So the mental side, of, you know, the, the side effects of um, missing training, you know, how frustrating that is, you know, the, the lows that you can get yourself into, wondering whether you'll be good enough if you get picked again, you know, will you ever get fit again? Um, if you are, will you get into the Leicester team? Will I get picked in England again? Um, all those doubts creep into your mind. Then to prove to yourself that you can get through it, to prove that you can get your body back fit and you can create uh, processes and, and order and structure that will help you do that, all helps build a sort of inner confidence, inner belief that if it's if something's put in front of you, you don't actually worry about it anymore. I never, I never other than that moment I just described to you, I never thought I'd ever be forced to retire from the game because I, I always thought you, it was just something else to get over. Yeah. And I had, was, I think it was 14 operations during my career. And, and each one, at no stage do I think I'm not going to get back from this. Other than that one moment, I was, it was always just another hurdle. You know, it was never a barrier. It wasn't like a brick wall. It was just a, it was a hurdle. And, and it, that mindset supported me the best when in or so what was it 2005 i was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis which is bowel disease and again like i was i was in a really bad way at one stage you know losing like 10 kg in a couple of weeks which was basically all the weight i put on in pre-season so i was now um i was having to go to the loo you know multiple times in an hour sometimes being more than two feet from the toilet was too far you know it was you were it was losing you were losing blood through through Every time you went to the loo, um, you were fatigued quickly. All of that, all of that was happening, and I was still able to train and play, and never saw it as as something that was going to stop me because of, in my mind, the 
the learned skill that I developed by having to overcome all the operations and having to deal with all the operations and develop a mindset. It's like resilience isn't something that you're born with. It's just I was lucky. I had to go through lots of situations where I could develop it. Yeah. And and so when stuff was put in front of me, and there's plenty of times that I've not been resilient as well, yeah. you know, and and have sometimes stepped away from something I should step forward to uh, and all those things. But in these situations, it developed a mindset that allowed me to overcome even, you know, a bowel disease during my playing career. Yeah. It was, and to look back on it, it's, um, it's, there's no superhuman. I'm not a superhuman or anything like that. I'm just a normal bloke that was just confronted with these scenarios on more occasions than maybe some others and, and chose to deal with it in the manner that I did, which was just to, uh, to keep working until I could get, could get back. It's like, it sounds like the opposite of a victim mindset, if you like. Bad stuff happens. Bad stuff happens to have happened to me. Each time I've got over it, I will get over it. And you've just you just got to crack on, and it's it's no more than that. Yeah, I mean it, it is that simple. And I think people, you know, people make hypotheses about all these things, and they do great models and you know resilience models and all that jazz. But ultimately, it's it's you know it's just putting yourself in. It's either having the opportunity to put yourself in uncomfortable situations, or finding yourself in those situations and choosing you know, what actions you're going to take. Um, and it's for me, it was as simple as that. And, and it helped me develop a, a mindset that allowed me to get over things that maybe otherwise I, I might not have been able to. And just quickly on the ulcerative colitis, speaking up about that, opening up about that, because I know that you've described it as, you know, quite an embarrassing condition or you felt it was embarrassing at the time. And so wanted to keep it under well keep it to yourself and I, I know i've spoken to other people with say a similar thing so what did you learn though from coming out about it if you like and being open about it and and how people dealt with it and the difference between reality and perception i suppose it, it taught me a few things that i thought i was dealing with it well by not saying anything and keeping it from people um i thought coaches would judge me because i'd had so many injuries i thought it'd be another reason for them not to pick me um I withheld it from my friends, so then when I needed support, I didn't really get it. Um, it I suppose in, in, in hindsight, the, the biggest lesson I, I learned was that as soon as I started speaking about it, which took me almost two years, was all, all, the, all the sort of self-imposed pressure that I was putting myself under, you know, disappeared. Mm. Actually, it became so easy. No one judged me for it. Um, it was yes, still embarrassing. Like it was still embarrassing to wander down the street and and ultimately have to hide, panic, run around trying to find a loo. And when you don't realize that essentially you're going to crap yourself uh, in public at the age of twenty five or six or whatever I was, um, you know, there's never there's never a moment where that's not going to be embarrassing. Yeah. Um, but it meant that talking about it when I when those situations would occur the lads knew and actually they'd just be supportive and actually they'd make it easy or, you know, called black humor or whatever. They'd, they'd make a joke about it and therefore it'd make me feel at ease and more comfortable. And, and actually it turned out the coach at the time also had a, had a similar condition. So yeah, totally empathize. Um, and did, yeah. were, were you as well appreciative of the fact that when you did open up about it, you were able to impact other people who were going through it because obviously a pub, when a public figure like you speaks out about something like that, I'm sure lots of people must have come to you and said, thank you. Mate, I loved, 
I loved it when people felt they could come to me. It was almost like uh, that someone had given them the ability to speak freely all of a sudden about something that they'd not spoken about for a long time. And uh, I had numerous people just walk up to me in the street like they knew me mm. and say, oh, Lewis, and talk, talk about their toilet habits like that was the norm. <laughs> You know, who does that? I, I felt really, I, well, what a great position to be in that just because I'd, I'd spoken about something that was personal to me, people felt they could do the same. And, you know, it's, um, <clears throat> I love the feeling in life that, you know, you can, you can find a way to overcome everything, adapt to it, you know, coping mechanisms. Yeah. Um, and it, com- and, it comes and- back as well, though, to Lewis, to what we were saying earlier about acceptance and authenticity, though, doesn't it, as well? You know, we, these thoughts that we have, where we imagine a future where things are going to go a certain way, people are going to react, we're going to get rejected, we're going to get shunned, stuff's going to be bad. Like The mind has a habit of projecting a worst-case scenario. And then actually, you know, you, you open up, you, you're honest, you're, you accept your condition, you, other people then automatically accept it, you, you're actually able to impact other people. It, again, just comes back to that acceptance and authenticity, I think, is, uh, you know, if you're going to lead on values, uh, those two for me, are, I don't think you can top them really. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. But I think it, it's, a, it's, a simple, it's a simple concept, isn't it? But it sometimes takes us a long time to understand. I know it took me a long time to Absolutely, get there. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And that, right, so you retired in 2012 through injury. Um, I mean, you'd had so many. And then, like you said, I, I read, you know, you thought that you were going to be, um, you were terrified about about retiring because you didn't know, you know, rugby had been your life and it's such a common thing for sports people. You know, how do you ever replicate running out in front of, you know, 60, 70, 80,000 people at Twickenham, representing your country, singing the national anthem, playing in World Cup finals, knocking yourself out repeatedly during matches, being a lunatic, et cetera, et cetera. So you obviously, you know, you spent a couple of years or I'm interested to know how long it you spent uh, before you really found your purpose, which it sounds like happened when you met Joss, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, and do you know what? I wouldn't say that I found it at that point, but what uh, I'll tell you, or I'll try and keep it quick, right? But um, so how, so I retired 2012, I can't remember the exact date, but Two weeks later, we got a letter from a chap called Graham Rowley-Stark. Graham is Joss's dad. Um, and in the letter, it just said, you know, mate, son's ill. He's got a rare form of cancer. Is there anything you could do? Can you come up? Um, we're in Sheffield. I'm in Bath. <laughs> can you come up? Can you just jump on the train? Can you drive up, come see us, you know, take a training session? <clears throat> I'd obviously got time on my hands now. I didn't know what I was going to do post-retirement. So I, I, you know, I just jumped on it. It seemed like a, a genuine letter and a cry for help. So I went up, met Joss, met the family, Leo, Tiff, Graham, um, and took a training session uh, and dropped off a load of old kit, which I obviously didn't need anymore. And the, they auctioned it off. And, and I suddenly I met a young man in Joss that was, A, incredibly talented, incredibly humble, uh, lovely kid who couldn't take part in the session, but wanted me to raise or go on tour, but wanted me to raise money for his mates to go on tour. Um, so I think that you know, I, I felt a connection to that instantly and in a moment where, you know, I was unsure of what I was doing. Um, anyway, so <clears throat> for the next year and a half, I spent getting to know Graham and, and Leo and, and Joss and kept in touch with them and, you know, had some great conversations and, and hopefully tried to pick him up when he was having some tough days. And about 
year and a bit later, got a call from Graham just to say, look, Joss, Joss is struggling. Leo's struggling because he's not getting any attention. Joss is it's all about Joss and hospitals and medication. Is there anything you can do? So we took him. I said, look, let's go to a game. We'll watch England v Scotland, I think it was. So, you know, obviously one I, <laughs> I hoped we'd win. And, um, <clears throat> and um, we, we watched the game. RFU were really kind. Gave us wonderful hospitality. Stuart Lancaster said, come down to the change room, bring the boys in. Um, went up into the hospitality afterwards and, and the, the lads had a great time. You know, Joss was Joss was struggling at this point. He was he was he was struggling with the chemo. Um we sat on the table with like Manu Turangi and Macavuna Polo and Dan Cole and, and Joss was confident enough at that age. I think he'd just turned sixteen to sort of tell some of the lads where he should be doing it. But you know, why were you doing that, lads? I think you should have done it like this. That's 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 punchy. <laughs> They're like twenty stone. They like eat you basically, mate. Um but anyway, so look, it, it, it all finished and we went away and I got a call from Graham like about a week later and he was like, mate, that was perfect. The lads, smiles on their faces, the signed stuff, paraphernalia, photographs, shirts, all over the house. Um, you know, it was exactly what they needed. And at the end of the phone call, just said, look, but Joss didn't, you know, Joss lost his battle with, with cancer uh, yesterday. And I was like, it was, you know, it's just one of those moments in your life where you go, that is, these people talk about life-changing moments. That was a life-changing moment for me. I didn't know why at the time. Anyway, so after that, Annie and me, you know, it hit us, it hit us emotionally. Um, we decided that we'd funnel our charitable focuses into one charitable area, and that was going to be setting up our own foundation. Um, and it was going to be in Joss's memory. I wanted it to be called the Joss Riley Stark Foundation, but... Because of my position at the time, people said you should use your name to, you know, raise more awareness. So we did. It's the Lewis Moody Foundation, um, and in in Joss's memory, we've been able to support a charity, the Brain Tumor Charity, um, and an organisation, and people living with brain tumours, which was the biggest cancer killer and still is of under forties by nine and children, um, for the last six years. And 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 I say I didn't. You talked about purpose and meeting Joss. And the irony, and I suppose the irony of it is that Graham, Joss's dad, came to me, one of the most lovely human beings you ever meet, by the way, Graham. He just couldn't talk forever. Um, he came to me asking for help. And the irony was that actually it, he gave me more help than I was ever going to be able to give him or Joss. Wow. And, and that was that was a purpose, like beyond playing. But I didn't even realize that until about two years ago when I was chatting to Graham. And I was like, you realize what? You're... Actually, it's making me a little bit emotional now, mate. But it, it was one of those moments in your life, you know, where you get a sudden realization from a decision you made and a letter that was written, written, and a, and a young man that you met had a profound impact on the rest of my life, went my life till now. Um, and whatever happens, you know, I'll we'll still be there doing as much as I can for the foundation and those families. Um, and in Joss's memory, such a brilliant young man, you know, and my wife and I, Annie, I say me, so it's me and Annie, but um, yeah, so mate, that was, that was a profound and, and, and life-changing moment generally yeah. for me, because otherwise I would have drifted. I didn't know what to do. You know, I didn't know what my purpose, I didn't know what my skills were. You know, people said I had loads of transferable skills. No one told me what they were. I didn't ask what they were. Maybe I was embarrassed. I shouldn't, yeah, I should know. But through the foundation as well, through meeting Joss and Graham, it helped me discover, you know, what some of my skills were. Yeah. Um, What's and can, yes. can ask because um, I think often 
it can be easy or the, the, an obvious option might be, let's say, to go into punditry and all that kind of stuff. And obviously, you know, the, again, you have this serendipitous moment where this, this 16 year old came into your life. And like you said, you know, you, you were able to help him and their family and they, but, but in doing so, it really helped you as well. Did did that experience change you? Did it did it make you see life a bit differently? Did it did it humble you? And and you know how would you compare the purpose then of what you've got since then and how you've grown the foundation to the purpose of of playing alongside your teammates and putting your body on the line for England? Oh, mate, I don't, I don't know how I'd compare it to those two. Actually, um, I suppose in a slightly selfish sense, the foundation has given me the opportunity to still test myself because one of the element or one of the ways we raise money or predominantly the main way that we raise money is taking people on challenges all over the world. Right. So I, I, I have this ability to, to, uh, it's almost like a physical outlet that I can now look forward to maybe once or twice a year um, on a pretty major and epic expedition or challenge led by two really good friends of mine, Alan and Wayne. And, and we can bring a collective group of individuals together to focus our attention on raising money for a good cause. So a collective goal, right? So actually, <laughs> I've just I've talked myself into the answer. <laughs> is there, there's, there's the obvious answer, right? Is that I'm doing something with people again. Yeah. You know, we, I'm doing it for a cause that's really important to me. And, and I'm helping and hopefully getting people to buy into that as well. Um, and we're then putting ourselves through some pretty and we've been to the north and south absolutely Pole, yeah that. yeah 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 talk me through one of those because you've said didn't you do the what's it called the yukon art arctic ultra right well actually do you know what? i'll just tell you the the quote that's in my head which was that you said yeah. you know when you go on these things it's not necessarily the physical it's the mental it's it's just mm. so mentally challenging so can you just what can you take mentally from one of these nuts challenges that you love doing pre-pandemic well, mate, first, first of all, I'll tell you about the Yukon really quickly because that was great. I did that just after retiring in 2013. It's an ultra marathon. We were trying to do 300 miles. Um, I got frostbite at 100 miles. I've seen the picture and, of your hands. <laughs> yeah, that totally destroyed me because I was like, there's no way I won't be able to finish this physical challenge. And, and it, I, I like to call it a successful failure, a, a phrase I've coined from a friend of mine. And uh, because it taught me about, you know, preparation, I allowed my um my caring side so one of the lads I was with was struggling to sort his kit out so I put my I put I took my gloves off ultimately put them put them to the side and started helping him sort his kit out so I lost focus of what was important which is my own health to try and support him there was ways I could have done it in a way that wouldn't have undermined my own health um so that focus that attention to detail has never been one of my strong suits was was going to be really important going forward for any other challenges so i call it successful failure because it helped me then get through the north pole i knew what i would have to do to be able to get through that opportunity sort of the focus the attention on the preparation um you know spending months making sure your routine was correct the the bag was you know the sled was correct uh packed correctly and and all these little things that I went through. But um, but I, I'm not going to lie and say it doesn't give me a physical outlet. I really enjoy that physical outlet still. And I woke up every morning enjoying being in the North Pole, um, despite it being like minus 30 or minus 40. And you know, and in the days, you know, when you're, when you're really fatigued, it might be only walking, but you're so knackered. And it's just straight and boring. And 
I just really enjoyed it. I really, and, and getting down in the tent at night, knowing that you, you get in your routine, you get in your sleeping bag, or you, you, you put the tent up, you get in the tent, you put your cooker on, you get a hot chocolate, you have a chat, and you share some stories, and you get in your routine of your sleeping bag. And oh, mate, it's, it's wonderful. But what it really mentally, what it taught me was um, those, those challenges and experiences give me a real clarity in my own head. They allow me time to think. And um, first of all, they, they make me aware of a lot of my limitations that I don't like detail normally, is that I have to be focused on preparing for this. Um, and I have to make sure I get that detail right. But I, surprisingly, I really enjoy it when I do these challenges. Yeah. And, and mentally, when you're on them, again, there's, there's, I don't, there's nothing about mind over matter or anything like that for me it's just it, it gives me a really weird sense of clarity it allows me to think clearly it helps me wade through all the rubbish that's going on in my life because you have such a singular focus every morning yeah. when you wake up is just to get from a to b yeah. put the tent back up get back in it stay warm eat and then go back out the next day is that whilst you're walking you can just think about everything else and i clear up so much crap that i do in my life when i go on these challenges it's like uh yeah, it's like it's like quite a cathartic yeah, yeah. experience. So you get perspective. So what 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 are the some of the rubbish that you've when you've been on one of these uh, treks, you know, through the Arctic, you've looked at your life and thought, why the hell am I worrying about that or that or this? Like, what what are the things that that really stick out for you? I think distraction is that what you have when you're on those things is clarity of of your goal. It's really simple each day. Um, and in that clarity allows you to think about all the other stuff. So if I apply that to my life, I then start thinking about what am I doing in my life? What is the goal that I'm working towards and what's the stuff that's distracting me from reaching it? So when I'm there, I'm able to the start, you know, the sort of stuff that you've said yes to all this, or it might be lingering in your, in the back of your mind. It's like, should I, should I, or should I not do this? Or it seems like a really good idea. I might earn a bit of money out of it. Um, but actually, is it going to, is it going to focus me on my goal or is it going to distract me from reaching my goal? It's distracting me. Okay, well, I get rid of that. Um, and and uh, do you know what? It's, it's annoying because I can say I have that clarity when I'm on those trips. Sometimes when I come back into my normal day to day life, it's actually it's really easy to forget that yeah. simple goal and that simple focus again and get um, overwhelmed with other information. But if I try and apply that um, to my sort of weeks and my months, I've, I do find it helpful. I have to keep revisiting it because I often get off track again. But that's one of the things that has really helped me personally with as well yeah something that really strikes me throughout your throughout your career and into your obviously your foundation and doing these mad trips and these uh you know the cycle rides and the thousand uh, mile expeditions and you know kayaking and all this whatever else like you're you're someone who just relishes getting out of your comfort zone and i know like for you're into your extreme sports i know that you've got vertigo so you're Simon, I'm going to stop you there as well, mate, because I've learned something else on these challenges. And one of my brilliant, one of our brilliant participants said this to me and, and, I, and I didn't realize it until she said it. She was like, you're right. So I like putting myself out of my comfort zone. But my reality is, is actually that is my comfort zone. I love being in those environments. Mm. So actually, that's not being out of my, you know, that's not me being uncomfortable. That's actually me being comfortable. And she said, what is you know, what is your challenge? She's like, you like doing these things Like you like, you know, trying to complete an ultramarathon or going to the North, but what's your challenge? And ultimately, you know, it, it, it really made me think about 
uncomfortable situations to be in and and stuff that I find uncomfortable is like around self-promotion so you know okay if I'm you know if I'm doing life if, if I've got something that so earning money right so I need to earn money in life outside of rugby the foundation I don't earn a penny from the foundation I do it because I absolutely love it and I'm I'm connected to a, to a story and a moment and supporting individuals so how do I I then find connecting so making money in your life okay there is a challenge there because i'm now got to go out and ask people to pay for a service that i provide and there is a conflict in my mind there because i think in my mind people go well why don't you just do it for free yeah. <laughs> so i don't know why i think that but i so i have i have there's a lot of stuff that i have to work through still um and the challenging stuff for me is not going and doing um and, and I, so i don't mean that arrogantly no no i know i know no, no, it makes sense oh, it makes it's sense. obvious it's, it's obviously a challenge right but it's a physical challenge that I enjoy. The other stuff that I don't enjoy is the academic, is the putting yourself in your out of your comfort zone, standing up on a stage and giving a presentation about leadership when you essentially didn't think you were a good leader. So, you know, finding trying to be authentic about leadership um, in those situations, you know, how do you do that? So then I have to come back to, okay, what is being authentic for me? Yeah. You know, telling it. Yeah. So, so there's lots of stuff to unpack there, mate. But I wanted to challenge you on that. No, no, no. I, I think that's a really good point. Myself on it, and it was, it was really, I was really eye-opening. What the trips make me realise more and more is that we're all capable of more yeah. than we ever realise. You know, some of the people we've taken on challenges, it's never about a race. There's no race element. It's just getting from A to B yeah. safely. Some, some of the individuals we've had, you know, some have been seriously overweight sat behind a desk for 20 years needed needed challenge never thought they were going to make it even went out there going i'm not going to make this get through each day with the support of other teammates get to the end of each day in tears because they've made it stop at stop at lunchtime in tears that they're not going to make it and come the end they are just euphoric about the fact that they've done something that they didn't think they were capable of it's just every time it just reminds me that we're capable of anything if we put our mind to it and if we've got the right support you know, and, and that support network, I think, is is pretty key as well because I'm sure we could go do it on our own as well. But it's it's made significantly easier with those individuals that are prepared to work with you and help you through it, and more meaningful as well. Which is, you know, comes back to what we're saying is the thread going through your life. And and when you talk about those guys, you know, they they're euphoric because they achieved something they they didn't think they were capable of. It reminds me of you know what you were saying about the 2007 and why the 2007 World Cup was so special, and it's. It's like challenging yourself and putting yourself in in difficult situations and proving that you can do it, but as with others and as part of a team. And there was a really lovely quote of a guy called Alan Chambers, who, who's one of your challenge leaders. And he said, you know, seeing strangers commit to a cause with passion and purpose is pure gold. Selfless acts of kindness and humility when people are in a difficult place, whether that be up a mountain or wherever, reminds us we all have a bigger purpose to fill. And I think you know, your story, whether it be on the rugby pitch or what you're trying to do with the foundation, I thought that that quote really summed up for me. It's, it is, you know, it is, we, we all have a bigger purpose to fill and, and that has to be with others in community in with your teammates, with your friends, with, with people at large, with the world at large, everything like that. Mate, I a hundred percent couldn't agree more. I'm glad you quoted Alan because he's one of life's brilliant human beings uniquely authentic and uh, an utterly brilliant person. He was the UK's, I'll get this right, 
first explorer to the UK, unsupported. No, first explorer to the UK. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Oh, oh man. Wow. What did you? <laughs> first explorer to the North Pole, unsupported, and he is just gold, mate. He is one of like. I'm glad you quoted him, but it, but you you hit the nail on the head. You know, it's it, and lockdowns reminded me more than ever that community it re-engaged me with community with my neighbors the people on my street mm. hadn't spoken to in ages that you've formed different opinions of because you've not spoken to them and that information void you've filled yourself with other information or it's because they don't like me or they're getting annoyed or i've done so actually chat to them they've just been busy or you know their life's stressful mm. all of a sudden you reconnect you start helping each other out yeah i think lockdown's reminded me of that again and, and the strength of community and how oh, important mate, 100%. it is 100 percent you should be a, you should have you thought about being a counselor <laughs> here it is like you got you got all the skills man. oh lewis bless I've never, you. i've never i mean i can be open but i've never divulged all this stuff before <laughs> i mean I've, I've been crying um and we've been to, we, we were talking about half an hour before we blooming started as well so I know, what is it? Is it midnight? Yeah. It feels like it. My, my room is like it's I know, I'll tell you what, I'd, I'd like to cut the start with the, with the end from the video because <laughs> yeah. it's nice and light. But listen, I mean, look, there's so many lessons, I think, from, from your story, you know, what your journey you've been on. And like I said at the start, before we started recording, I, I, I said that I think of people like you and Johnny Wilkinson and Goldie Says, Chrissy Wellington, Josh Butler, these people who... You know, you, you've achieved great stuff and yet remained humble. I'm so, I think that you can't, humility, particularly when it's allied with achieving something impressive, I think is uh, is such a wonderful um, a trait to have. So I, I doff my cap to you for that. But then this thread, there is just such a clear thread running through your whole life or, or your whole career, whether it be your rugby or your foundation, and that is putting yourself out of the way for other people and you get something back from that. But do you see what I mean? It's that circle, isn't it? You, you in serving a purpose bigger than yourself, which is maybe whether that's a team of 14 other people on a rugby pitch, uh, people suffering with brain tumors, families suffering because their children are suffering people who have been stuck behind a desk for 20 years in serving others, you know, that's giving you your purpose and, and getting you out of your comfort zone. I think, I don't know if I explained it very well. I summarised it very well, but it seems that that's a really clear thread going through your life. I thought that's a good summary, mate. And it, but it's taken me, you know, what am I now? Forty-two. I'm nearly forty-three, which is utterly depressing. <laughs> You're a young but, man. Um, You're a young man. Yeah, right, age is no barrier, right? Um, but yeah, it, it's taken it's taken time to to get to these realizations, and, and I, I'm continuing to learn every day, and I get so much enjoyment out of you know, each each day and the kids and, and new courses and new experiences and, and actually feeling like I'm gaining an aptitude for, for different things now. But uh, but you're right. In your summary, you are absolutely right. The, the, the stream that runs through my life is, is helping others, even to the point we set up a company about five years ago, my wife and I, which uses rugby essentially to support sixth form students, you know, in, in school. So you use sport to support their journey through school and, and hopefully transition them into something else. So, you know, yes, that's maybe using my skill set as a, as a, as a rugby, a former rugby player and a knowledge about the game. But actually it's not about, yes, it's about imparting that sort of wisdom, but also about developing them, showing them opportunities that are out there beyond sport and school. And, you know, the, the joys that, that rugby can bring from a, from a team point of view that I suppose I've, I've tried to explain to you. So, you're right. No matter what I do in my life, I can't get away from working with uh, with people. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, that's what it's all about, I think. You know, we rather than me. Anyway, there's been loads of lessons in this one. Acceptance. We've spoken about that. Authenticity. 
being open, not believing those gremlins in your head. You know, when we get out there, we can deal with things in reality. Resilience through experience and serving a purpose bigger than yourself and humility. So, Lewis, it's been a real pleasure. It really has. It's, it, I really appreciate you you sparing the time. And I know that obviously the foundation has taken a hit because of COVID. So how do you point people? If anyone did want to donate or help you out or get involved, where can you point them? Really easy, mate. Just if there's if you go to the website lewismoodyfoundation.org, you know there's a donate button on there if you want to just be generous, um, or if you want to get involved, please come and get involved. There's a challenge page. Go up to the menu, look at all the different stuff that we do. It's not all mental, crazy. <laughs> some of it's quite, you know, so it's quite normal, and it's all just about doing it with good people and getting from A to B for a good cause. So um, yeah, check out lewismoodyfoundation.org and any support would be greatly appreciated. Lewis, I'm, Cheers, I'm bang up for it. I'm gonna, as, soon, as soon as I finish doing spinning a few plates, I'm all in, mate. I'm all in. Don't say it if you don't mean no, it, Listen, mate, I'm, I'm, I'm well up for it. I'm well up <laughs> okay. for it. Um, but listen, mate, listen, it's been a real pleasure talking to you, Lewis. A cracking story, a cracking bloke, loads of lessons. So yeah, it's just been a real pleasure, mate. So thank you very much indeed. Cheers, pal. Take care, bud. Thanks for listening to this episode with Lewis Moody. It was an absolute pleasure chatting to him. And if you enjoyed it, and if you think that there's anyone you know who also might enjoy it or might be able to take something from it and fancied sharing it with them, I'd be very grateful. Also, of course, ratings and reviews are hugely appreciated. Thanks to everyone who's been in touch recently via social media at Simon Mundy. And as well, thanks to everyone who's signed up to my new newsletter, via my website simonmundy.com Monday on a Monday is its name and it's taking some of my favourite nuggets and packaging them in such a way as to hopefully get your week off to an upbeat start massive thanks to Lewis the work he does through his foundation is terrific thank you to you for listening as ever hugely appreciated but that is it from me for now I hope you'll join me again next time on Don't Tell Me The Score Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.